Welcome back, listeners, to the Egg Watchers podcast. You've got Andrew and myself, and we've got a very special guest on uh, today, someone that we're a big fan of, particularly on Twitter, but um, he's got a great following and um, interesting fellow to chat to, Simon Kusenmaker. He's, a, I guess, a demographer, Simon, would be the best way to describe what you do. But um, I'm, I'm sure quite a few of our listeners that love our charts, if, they're, if you're a fan of charts and, and data, um, you, you, if you, you should know a Simon, and if you don't, do yourself a favour uh, and follow him on Twitter. You're Simon German six hundred. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and welcome to the show, so, Simon. Why don't you give us a quick? Because my little summary to saying your demographer might not be enough to describe what it is you do. Just give us a quick, uh, you know, a couple of seconds worth of of how you see yourself and what you do as as your role. Oh, exactly. So I do spend my days looking at population data at economic data about Australia. And then I'm trying to, uh, you know, dig through an awful lot of dirt to find the diamonds hidden in in the rough uh, to actually then tell stories, tell narratives about how Australia is changing from a population perspective, from an economic perspective, even from a global geopolitical perspective, just to understand what, um, you know, what we're doing at the moment and what the future might hold for us. And I always start with a very strict strong data foundation and i'm always confident that this data is actually rock solid and on top of this i add interpretation i add narrative and i'm always happy to be uh, called out for my narrative my interpretation to be ludicrous <laughs> for whatever <laughs> it is but already this this foundation and data sets me up for um, a very structured discussion rather than this whole thing. Ah, you made this all up. This is all fake news. This is nonsense. So that doesn't work. So it, you know, I trick people. I trick my audience into having a civilized conversation, if you will. So, so, so if you're, you're, uh, you, you work on populations and you count numbers of populations. So that, Matt, that now means you are a livestock demographer. <laughs> oh, is that, okay, a new title, a new title. New title. And Simon, before and we so, move, so, so, sorry, Simon, like I, I actually used to follow you, and I, I just I looked at your Twitter followers now, two hundred nineteen thousand followers. I just want to point out, I'm pretty sure I started following you when you had about five thousand followers. Ah, very good, early and, adopter. Uh, early adopter, and and you used one of my charts a couple of years ago. Ah. Uh, it was a chart that I made for my wife. <clears throat> oh my god. Yes, of course. I actually remember that. Yeah, and it was a chart which was a an animated map, very, very not not well done in Tableau, which was <laughs> the location of every snake bite death in Australia <laughs> since Federation. I'll have to find that. I, I, I think that's on my. Back. I'll I'll, on my... I'll 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 dig it up. I'll dig it up. Refind it. And before it we did, go too it, far, it, it, it didn't help alleviate my wife's. Uh, concerns when it comes to snakes though it, it made it worse because quite a few of them were not far from our house too, too close for comfort <laughs> before we go too far ahead though people that don't know you simon will, will tell like andrew that the uh, the accent's not a not a classic australian act that you are you are with your focus on data and an australian bent to it you are based in australia even though um the accent's a bavarian or a german accent Exactly. So I'm, uh, you know, German, Bavarian uh, by birth and then came over to Australia. Um, what is it? 13, 14 years ago for one semester of university and then met a girl and I've been here ever since and really fell in love, not just with her, but with the Australian richness of data. It's, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't think so per se, 
that Australia, you know, an easygoing country has such detailed data collection processes in place. So my job, which is, of course, I speak at uh, conferences, I speak. I write columns about um, about data, about the future of the country is much easier in Australia than it would be in Germany, where we have limited data available. It would be much harder in the US as well, where the Americans run a census every 10 years and ask nine questions. And in Australia, we run a census every five years and ask 65 questions. So the amount of uh, cross-tabulation, of analysis, that you can do with the data that we have in Australia is, is through the roof. It's fantastic. We can learn an awful lot about what's going on in the country. And that's probably, not- that's probably slightly different for agriculture, where we always think there's more data in the US for a lot of commodities than, it, it, than here. It fully depends on what kind of structures you have in place to collect certain type of data. So, you know, we run basic population data really well here. I'm not as familiar with all the agriculture data that we collect. There is, of course, economic data that, that we collect linked to uh, employment data linked to agriculture. That's that's really well connected. Um, there's plenty of good uh, you know, GIS satellite uh, data about land use, about um, utilization of, of certain types of, uh, you know, lands and that's all really well done but it's you know how much of this ends up in the hands uh, of the end user in a digestible format so that it actually helps you to run a better more efficient uh, farm operation and that's what we sort of is, is what you do is very similar to what we do to an extent in our in our professional life and that is try and gather data from everywhere use a bit of experience, put a bit of logic behind what that data is showing, and then try and simplify it to a point where, you know, I could give it to my mother and she would understand it, you know. Yes, and that's where you need editorial courage. Um, It's very easy to give people an awful lot of data, you know, just to dump it uh, in front of them and say, well, here's a lot of data. I'm sure you'll make sense of it. Yes, that might be useful if you have an awful lot of time to spend and you're an expert in the startup, but you really need to have the courage of distilling the couple of main insights of whatever you're looking at and then telling uh, a, you know, a compelling narrative to the individual user. Yeah, you've got, you, you got to have a view on it. Yes, very much and, so. And so you were at the, you were at the Beef Conference in uh, Longreach. Rockhampton. So that was uh, one of the one of the few conferences that actually went ahead this year. What, what were you talking about there? Um, that um, that was the, the general big picture overview of um, Australian changes and also of consumer changes. So there is the whole idea: whatever you produce, uh, whether it's beef, whether it's cotton, um, it really helps you to understand the end user. Of course, you're interested um, in terms of simple market size. Is Australia growing? Well, during COVID, we stopped growing at the fast pace that we did grow before. And then the market therefore shifts. You know, we have uh, completely eliminated the big increase that we projected in in the young population. We thought we'd have uh, more young people. Now that you know, people have fewer kids, now that we have fewer migrants who add kids to the mix. So we have fewer of those people. We have fewer people in the 
um, what is the migrant age groups between 18 and 39. That's essentially all of migrants fall into this, uh, this cohort. And you take those out for a couple of years. That completely changes certain markets. Obvious examples are universities who have fewer university aged people around. So it's a problem for them. But whatever kind of um, beef product you might offer, that is interesting. If you take if you take a look at the market from a beef producer's perspective, for example, you would want to understand who consumes beef. And what you have now as a big mega trend over the coming decade is the millennial population born 82 to 99. Um, the biggest procrastinators uh, to ever have walked the Australian continent, invented the gap year, stayed at university for just more degree, one more degree, um, had kids later in life, purchased their first home later in life and so on. They are finally reaching the family formation stage of the life cycle. In practice, this means that they stop their eating out behavior and slowly start cooking more themselves. So you do have a big market. Millennials are by far the biggest market in Australia um, that is now moving into family formation stage that are now cooking dinners themselves. They have absolutely no idea how to deal with meat. How to is, that coinc- is that coincided also, Simon, with the rise in popularity of the cooking show? Um, you know, I think that's kind of one of the things that is making agriculture a bit more sexy as well. You had this really big um, jump in popularity for, for things like MasterChef and My Kitchen Rules and all those things. And then wanting to know more about the product you're cooking led people down the path of farmers markets and wanting to, you know, know the supply chain and, and, and then therefore, you know, moving into agriculture. Do you think it's all, it's all been a, a kind of a... Uh, you know, perfect storm to create this interest in, in food and, and, and then the flow onto agriculture as well and where, so, where these products come from? So if I look at the, the popularity of cooking shows, I think this is very much not limited to the millennial generation. I think this really reaches across the whole age spectrum and it is linked to the Australian obsession with lifestyle. The reason you move to Australia in the first uh in the first instant as a migrant is the lifestyle obsession is the idea that this is an easy laid back wonderful country to live in and you know food cooking for your family cooking for your friends serving up a big fat meal for everyone that really fits into this lifestyle extremely well and so I think that's where that's coming from. The millennial cohort has the specific need of learning how to cook because they haven't done it before, because they really relied on, um, you know, eating out an awful lot, which has to do again with demographic shifts. So you have this big population that lived for a very long time uh, throughout the whole twenties at the very least um, in reasonably small dwellings in the inner cities of, of Australia. That means they don't entertain at home because the, you know, their dwellings are too small. So they tend to entertain in third spaces, which is a weird way of saying restaurants and pubs, restaurants, cafes. So you eat out and you meet your friends at a third space on on a neutral ground, if you will. And so the cooking is, is being done by professionals. So now you end up with a really sophisticated cohort of millennials that once fancy, that is used to fancy foods. And they now want to, for financial reasons, because they have kids and a big fat mortgage. Um, They can't order Uber Eat, even though they want to every night. So they need to cook more themselves. That means they need to teach themselves how to cook. And this is once again, where we come back to all those MasterChef shows who actually, you know, it's okay. So you buy this weird beef thing in the supermarket. What the heck do I do with it? You do need, um, you do need instructions 
uh, you know, you do need people that uh, hold you by the hand because mom and dad can't teach you because you probably moved city. So we live further away from our families, from our traditional networks that teach you uh, certain skills, how to how to deal with certain foodstuffs. And now that's done by well the Internet and, uh, you know, the Coles magazine or whatever yeah. uh, you have. Yeah. Yeah, so go, Andrew. No, no, you go. I was just going to say, though, um, with that that kind of space, you, you'd mentioned um, you know, before about this, this millennial change and, and, and the change that's done to demand. Did you see much or did you talk much at Beef Week about or were there any questions around this rise of the, um, of the fake meats and the alternative type plant-based uh, meats? Was that, was that something that came up at Beef Week? I would have thought yeah, so when we, when, we look at, when we look at the trends, future trends for future populations, we do immediately notice that this big millennial generation and then the younger cohort called Gen Z, the Greta Thunberg generation of this, uh, of this planet, are very obsessed with purpose. So environmentalism is one of those things, but the overarching interest lies in purpose, um, which is a funny thing to distangle and to, to understand is, well, the purpose in life must come from somewhere. And it certainly doesn't come from God anymore, you know, a very uh, atheistic uh, country. So it doesn't come from there. It doesn't come for many people from uh, from family you know the baby boomers might say we're atheists as well purpose in life comes from family well the uh, millennials and the younger ones they don't have families yet they won't start families until their mid-30s so where does meaning of life come from maybe you put a big emphasis on work maybe your work needs to be really purposeful but you could also find some other cause that you really attach yourself to and one of those causes can be environmentalism can be to live a um you know, a clean, sustainable life as possible. And that is, of course, it's scientifically true that this might help uh, from a CO2 emission perspective, but it also has to do with the, uh, with the self-image, the, the story that people tell themselves about their own lives is I do this kind of thing. I eat vegan, vegetarian, whatever, um, because I'm willing to do something for the greater good. And it tells a very nice story about yourself. And then you have, uh, you know, a bit of a, um, a thing to attach meaning in life to until you have your own families. I do actually think that, um, and I don't have data for this yet, but I have a big fat gut feeling that the number of vegetarians in a population declines once you enter the family formation stage. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would make it, it makes sense. I, from a, I guess, from a biological perspective, there's a lot of, and certainly within the space I inhabit, which is the livestock space, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of medical, I guess, literature to say that, particularly in that growth phase of young children, um, tampering around with diet and not not providing enough of the right type of nutrients that can be pre- delivered by meat proteins fairly efficiently, and having to rely on other, you know, there are other alternatives, of course, but it's a lot more tricky and a lot more complex. And then when you, if you bring in a fussy child into the mix, um, it's a lot easier potentially to provide yeah. them with a, with a meat product that's tasty and, and gets all the nutrients quickly and efficiently than than having a whole lot of other alternative products. My my, my wife never used to eat meat. Yeah. Until until we sort of moved in together, not not much meat, but the the reality is that you know it just became too much hassle to to create two dishes, and she'd never had she'd never had pork before, yeah. which is obviously a background thing with with my wife, and she had barely eaten beef. It was all just lamb. That was all she if she ate anything at all, 
so so there you go maybe it is that's just a, a macrocosm of a, a and it's it's just the family lifestyle stage that that you're in it's just you have you have a lot to do you know you have a job you have a kid to manage then you have to cook uh you know it's easy to to you know just a spec ball or whatever it's it's easy to throw this together uh, and, and that's part of the whole role of, of just managing this if you have only yourself to look after then you can do more complex diets you know they fit easy in your lifestyle but that, put... that, seem, that seems slightly different to me when i've got myself to look after if my wife and child go away it generally means beans on toast <laughs> or uh, or blood pudding. It, uh, and, and, and blood pudding but it's yeah. uh, but i wouldn't i wouldn't say it was necessarily more complex food as probably the opposite but and, and and a beer to go along with it. Very good. All the food, all the food groups. You... <laughs> um, you know, one minute so, noodles. Yeah, that's it. So, Simon, um, and so you, you said you're Australian based, but more specifically um, Melbourne based. So obviously um, a big fan of uh, the, the Melbourne coffee culture, but we just see uh, today it looks like um, there might be some added restrictions coming into to the down that's that's in Mel, in place in Melbourne currently. Obviously, Andrew and I being regional and rural, we we escaped that uh, for the moment at least uh, a week ago. But um, have you seen with this whole um, change with COVID? I guess over the last year or so, I know the word unprecedented has been used so many times. So we'll stick uh, clear it's, it's, of that. That's, that word's been used an unprecedented number of times. times. <laughs> but um, you know, when it comes to things like history and, and patterns and data, and then you get a an episode like a COVID that comes along that's a bit out of the box. Um, have you noticed any kind of big changes both within, you know, kind of Melbourne being, you know, been in lockdown, what, six times now? Yeah. Have you seen any big changes there around what COVID has done to the consumer or to the lifestyle of uh, people are doing? So COVID changed so many things, quite obviously. And it's always a big question to see whether all those changes into you know, behavior that, that occurred uh, due to COVID, how much of this behavior change is going to stay permanently? For example, if you look at retail shopping behavior, um, mm. before the pandemic, we had 6.6% of all retail taking place online. And if we drew a straight line, kind of projecting what would happen by now, we'd have around 7.12% um, happening online. So that's not an awful lot uh you know, a small increase. But what really happened is that online retail sales shot up to 11, close to 12%, and now fell to right around 9.4, It doesn't sound very dramatic to say, well, we have 2.4, uh, 2.4, 2.5% more of retail happening online. Every one percentage point that you put from uh, brick and mortar stores into online stores means 7.5 billion uh, uh, Aussie dollars. So that's a big shift. That means these brick and mortar stores have less money to be to be throwing around. This is why we slowly would expect, uh, we actually do see this, um, more, you know, empty shop fronts. It's okay if a Woolies, you know, they don't care whether you buy it online, they use the same, uh, you know, the same center, whatever. But it also changes, of course, the distribution of jobs. You know, you need less shop clerks, more warehouse workers and thereabouts. So it really uh, changes the world from that perspective. But well, if ever the lockdowns will be over and uh, done with, will we go back to the standard things? And the answer is, in my very honest opinion, no. We created so many new shopping behaviors that are actually beneficial. You know, ordering from Woolies online, 
that's rather comfortable if you have a family. No, that's fine. Probably some of this will stick. Um, and we had so many more people who, for the especially older people, who for the very first time purchased stuff on Amazon. Uh, and then you realize, oh, that's actually ridiculously convenient. And so all of a sudden you add a permanent behavior shift onto this. The same story can be told for working from home. Before the pandemic, we had the last census, 2016, we had 4.4% of the population working from home. This number shot up to right around 50% at the height of the lockdowns. Um, and, you know, in, in whenever the pandemic will be over, we won't have that high of a number, but we easily have 10, 15% of the workforce at any given day working from home. So, so Simon, one, one of the things you covered as well, and we, we talked there about the consumer sort of demands. One of the things is where people live. You know, you're, you're currently in, in Melbourne. So like we said, you're, you're suffering through a lockdown and, and we are not because we're in regional areas. And so, so uh, to an extent, we're lucky we can, we can go out for a, for a coffee and, and whatnot. Uh, and the coffee, as, as one of our previous guests said, the coffee is very good in regional Australia. So, so, so Melbourneites or Sydney ciders, they don't have to worry. But we are seeing like more and more people moving to the countryside. Yeah. Uh, when, we, when we can see that by like the real estate price is just, you know, in regional areas, it's just crazy. What do you... <laughs> The same sort of question, does that continue? So what we've done with the working from home movement is we enabled lots of people to work remotely or to at very least work remotely most of the time. So if I only go to the CBD you know, office in Collins Street or, or where, wherever, um, once or twice per week, I'm willing to do a longer commute on that one or two days that I need to go there. That opens up a whole new corridor of uh, regional Australia for people to live in because house prices are cheaper there. And you know, so what then happens is you have people on an inner city income who move to regional Australia. They go, oh, that's wonderfully cheap. I'm used to you know, buying a, a you know, three-bedroom house for $1.5 million and it's heaps cheaper here. This is great. But in a regional small market, you don't need many people to enter this market to create complete havoc. Um, and this, the first thing where we see it is high rental prices. Sure, the, the existing housing you know, that are up for sale is, is being purchased quickly, but the rental prices go up massively, which then has a trickle-down effect. Uh, for, and it means the, wor uh, the people who suffer the worst are the low-income earners. Because what do you do if you are a regional teenager who wants to stay locally um, but wants to move out of the family home you really can't so you get stuck at home or your options slowly move away and you also you you close up the opportunity for low-income workers from elsewhere to move to that regional agriculture town potentially to fill agri agriculture jobs so therefore we create a certain skill or at least we create the perfect breeding ground for a skills shortage of low-income agriculture workers, which then diminishes the opportunity for growth in the sector, simply because you have to ask the question, where the hell do you get low-skilled agriculture workers to live in, in your town if rent is, uh, you know, if it increased by 30, 40% over the last years? The economics don't stack up for those workers anymore. And, and 
And we're sort of finding that as well. We're finding in the initial stages of, of this, it's called the exodus from the city. It was all the traditional areas that you think of, you know, close to the city, like Trentham, yeah. Dalesford, uh, Bacchus Marsh, those type of cities uh, that were one hour, one and a half hours commute to the city. But now we're hearing of places that are what I'd consider to be ultra rural, like places selling sight unseen, you know, four, five hours from Melbourne, which is which is not just uh, it's obviously cheaper to buy, but it's a very different way of living. It's a, it's a different lifestyle and people need to make certain decisions. So once you move out of the, you know, call it a two hour radius into the, you know, what could be considered the extreme commuting um, radius, then the people move to a city and the city itself needs to be attractive enough uh, you now for you to live a life uh, there. Who is moving there? I think that's the, that's the big question. So people that move to a regional city that is really a rural city that's far away from the capital city far away from a big traditional uh, you know service uh, employment center why do they move there either they move there because they can safely take their job there digitally because they, they only work from home and they want to create some sort of family uh, environment where you live a rural or, or regional family lifestyle that works so these are the resettlers people who resettle to a new rural area without you know, much context, uh, but they take their jobs with them. They don't move there and hope that they find a job in this tiny town somewhere. That doesn't work. Then you have two other groups that could create population growth in the real regional towns. The first one are the remainers. These are the young kids that finish high school And that then traditionally leave the rural regional area to go to a TAFE, to go to a university at either the next uh, big town or really far away, maybe even interstate. If your uh, you know, education experience will be largely uh, online, why the heck would you leave home and move to an expensive place? It makes no sense. So you I, just I, I, I can on, I can give some some personal context to that. <laughs> I, uh, I I come from a small town in southwest Scotland, and I had the opportunity to do university from my hometown, and and I did that for the first two years, and then I could have got the same degree, but I decided that the lure of nightclubs and <laughs> and parties took me to Glasgow, which is a you know a student city. Yeah. So there is there is obviously personal reasons you, you want to experience something new, but I guess so. So when we when we look at these sort of regional areas and 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 rural areas that are having an influx of, of people, it is going to like you say you're almost saying there's almost a two step economy. You know, people who are wealthy uh, from the city, you know, and and upping sticks, and when we saw that in the UK as well, a lot of Londoners buying. In, in Scotland or, or wherever else, because you could buy a place in Scotland yeah. cheap and it was beautiful and, you know, you, can, you had fantastic food and, and commuting to London, you know, once a L month. Lovely weather, lovely weather lovely up weather. in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but really you're talking about, you know, a big issue where <laughs> there are going to be people who are, who are wealthy who are not necessarily contributing to the local economy in the same way As, as working in economy, contributing it through use of services, 
but the services are going to be quite difficult, different that they require. If we use the old analogy, you know, those yeah. those latte sipping city folk um, the, versus versus somebody who needs to get the tractor serviced. So the big risk that you have there is that people move to a place and they're being resented for being there. They're not being integrated in the community. They're being looked down upon. They're being viewed critically as driving up house prices. In this scenario, absolutely nobody wins. <laughs> you, you, want to, you want to avoid this. In most regional towns in Australia, there is, in theory, plenty of space, plenty of economic, uh, you know, of, of construction um, potential. So you could easily house more people. Um, the problem here is that the, the surge of population in regional Australia, rural Australia at the moment, uh, where it happened, it did come unannounced. It did come unexpected. That means we didn't have enough time to build more houses uh, at scale uh, fast enough. And that's, a, that's, that's the real problem. The problem is not that a town that used to have 2,000 people and now has 2,200 people, um, now that it doesn't work anymore. It's just that you create too much house pressure in a short period of time. And you don't want this. Ideally, you want to say, yes, we are happily taking up more population because the big risk that we see at the moment in lots of regional and rural towns is that they are aging, is that they are shrinking. And once small towns shrink, you at some stage uh, reach a horrible situation where the local IGA uh, isn't financially feasible anymore. Then this shop has to close down. Then everybody needs to drive to the next uh, supermarket, which is annoying and it, it takes away life of, from the community. At some stage, when a, a town further ages, um, you can't man the local footy team anymore, which takes a lot of you know, social harmony and glue out of the town. So that's, that's a big problem. One of the benefits that um, the rural settlements, regional settlements have over big fat cities is that everybody goes to the same pub. There's not that much uh, you know, <laughs> uh, activity where they can go to the, oh, there's this fancy hipster place, there's this place. Everybody goes to the same pub. And that, is, that works miracles for social glue because you have at least casual conversations with a couple of people that are not exactly like you, socioeconomically speaking. That's important. People only having one footy team to join. That is important. We don't go to church. So, so social glue doesn't come from there. Um, but sports and um, alcohol uh, as social glue works much more efficient, much more e effectively in, in, in the regions than it does in the inner city. One, one point um, I want to touch on, because we've, we've kind of focused a bit with that move from the city to the country as maybe some of those smaller country towns like Andrew suggested that it wasn't just the bigger regional satellite towns but that also is a, a factor as well I mean I, I my wife and I and, and the kids we we up sticked from from Melbourne in the inner city of Melbourne I guess uh, and then eventually made our way out to Ballarat over a decade ago now because we were seeking lifestyle change and and all you know pre-COVID and a lot of our friends at the time then were mad, you know, going to, you know, what was then a, a town of less than 100,000 people. It was about yeah. 85 or 90,000. And it was very much a regional kind of agricultural town. And and um, even though it was only an hour and a half from Melbourne, it, it was considered to be, you know, what are you doing? Um, but since 
since COVID this last year, we've had um, four different family groups all move from Melbourne up and in, so either to Ballarat or in and around or to yep. you know the likes of Bacchus Marsh or elsewhere. Um, but again, they're still around uh, what would be considered to be a big regional town. Like Ballarat has, you know, two universities, a good, you know, two hospitals, uh, a lot of industry, you know, so there's a lot of work and, and you're only an hour and a half from Melbourne as well if you really need to get back in. Yeah. And there's places like your Bendigo's or, you know, those bigger regional centres, um, your Geelong's. And, and it mirrors a bit what I saw when I was living in the UK years ago where we had obviously London was the hub. But then you had, you know, your Birmingham's, your Newcastle's, your Manchester's. You it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of this is sort of hub and spoke approach, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, 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 so then, but then, sort of, when you think about it, let's say, let's look far into the future, hundred years from now, you know, Horsham becomes the spoke of Ballarat, for instance, mm. or Horsham is is obviously halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide. Mm. So, so maybe that is. Where but do you say what I was going to ask, Simon? Are you see, like, there's, there's a, there's a difference still. I, I imagine uh, between moving from Melbourne to a small town of say less than five thousand people, a small country town, as opposed to moving from Melbourne and going to a Ballarat or a Bendigo or you know. There's, there's a big difference, and you, you want to think about the motivations that that people have. So, one of the motivations to leave, uh, probably the biggest. Motivation is cost. So you leave Melbourne because you can't afford a family-sized home here. So you move to a regional town. But then the most obvious solution are regional towns that are larger and that have a university like Ballarat because they are more of an ecosystem, a full ecosystem in their own right. And the further down you go, the hierarchy of cities, um, the less attractive uh, the, the pull of the city is in its own right. There are beautiful lifestyle towns, uh, like a lawn or whatever. You know, uh, it's a regional town, but it it is so beautiful and famous in its own right that it attracts population. A Horsham really is an industrial town, and it, it is a a hub of the whole region where you have all the machine shops and all this stuff in there. So it's a very functional town. Um, do you go there for sheer lifestyle? Probably not, but you do the population that can come back are returners. So when we talk about local populations that grew up in Horsham, um, they have more of a connection to the town and they are more likely to return now to Horsham when they're in their 30s or 40s than they were beforehand, simply because they're now living in, in a very expensive capital city, most likely Melbourne. And, you know, they have their kids come to school age and now there is more of a pull back to their hometown than there was before COVID and than there was before just high house prices. So not all of this is COVID. Some of this is COVID people just ex escaping big cities that might be locked up um, or locked down. But some of this is simple economics. And the lower you are on the income spectrum, the better off you are living in a regional town than in an inner city or, or capital city. Because even on a, on a, you know, Median in medium income, it's tough to buy and well to ever afford to buy a house in, in Melbourne, to be honest. Is there much trend as well recently in the data? I'm not sure if the data is showing this yet. I, I know um, just filling out the census last week, this must be an exciting time for someone like you with all this <laughs> census activity. But has there been enough data yet to see if there's been a big shift between um, we know there's some shift between within the state interest interstate between you know say melbourne to ballarat or wherever but has there been also a big shift at all 
you know, given that, that Victoria has had more lockdowns than any other state, has there been, and there's, there's been discussion or anecdotal evidence of our oh, people have moved into Queensland now. Is that actually, is the data showing that? that we're seeing big That moves? is exactly what we're seeing in the data. So we have two states, when we just look at internal migration patterns, two states are losing population. That is uh, Victoria and New South Wales. <laughs> and the big winner here is Queensland. Queensland has always been the state to move to because it is the state to retire in. There's the old joke in the real estate uh, world, you know, ah, oh, he died so young, he hadn't even moved to Queensland yet. And <laughs> so, 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 so Queensland's our Florida. Queensland is our Florida, and it makes or, perfect or, sense. Or, or the equivalent of Dumfries and Galloway, a beautiful part of the world. <laughs> And so, so that's that's happening. So people are now considering moving to a certain area, but people are also more likely to stay in that area. So if you are a young high school graduate from um, Queensland, and you just even remotely looking at the news, are you going to go to university in Melbourne or Sydney? You probably not. You probably say, well, maybe I'll, you know, I'll go go here in Brisbane. Maybe that's better. For me, and so we have fewer people leaving Queensland, more people coming into Queensland. Queensland is a net winner in population terms from the pandemic, whereas Melbourne, in particular, is losing population, which then makes it very confusing to people when they look at Melbourne and say, "Okay, so we have people leaving Melbourne. We expected big, big growth, and we're actually losing people." So that's actually rather nice because finally housing becomes more affordable. And what is happening is the exact opposite. Housing became much more expensive during this time. And it's, well, it throws people off a bit. And what's happening here is, of course, all this stuff about low interest rates, you know, uh, lending uh, or borrowing money is cheap, but it has also to do with simple demographics, with the big millennial generation that is now finally reaching family formation stage. That means you have these, this big cohort of millennials leaving the inner suburbs, leaving Brunswick, leaving Fitzroy, and they need family-sized housing, three to four bedrooms. They are not available in the inner five kilometers of Melbourne. So they either move to suburbia, the urban fringe, or, you know, what the heck, I might as well move to regional Victoria, particularly if I have maybe some sort of family connection or, you know, if, if I make an argument that my job can be done mostly remotely and I then go to, you know, settle somewhere along a train line that can conveniently uh, put me to the CBD in, you know, one or two days per week. So in, in, in recent years, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of work in regional Australia trying to encourage people to uh, to move to the regions, which the best thing they could have done is create a virus and, and release it. Uh, but. You know, there, when, when we talk about those families moving there, let, let's say we're talking about a town of 2,000 people, between two and 5,000 people. Uh, traditionally and anecdotally, you might have the data, a lot of the people in those towns were probably of an older age compared to the demographics in, say, Melbourne. And then we sort of think, well, if you're now having more families moving, if you have 20 families move to a town, that makes a big difference to the community feel in terms of the viability of a GP practice or a small hospital or, or a school, which which then be, makes it more achievable to fund those services in a longer term. 
Oh, so the vibrancy that you get with families is absolutely important that you don't want to live in a town that is just aging. There's just too much skew toward the aging population. So you want to keep a balance, ideally. And the biggest gap in population in any regional town, this is always true, wherever you look, is people in their 20s and 30s, because that's the time of the life stage that you spend in a capital city. And winning those people back always was the big challenge. Now it is possible. That is, that is great news. That, of course, completely shifts the kind of services that are in demand. So we do need, and I work a lot with the local governments as well in my professional capacities, um, those guys need to rethink how they look at their community. They need to really have a good look at uh, demographics to understand how to best service their um, community. That's good um, as a whole. You know, that's how the city works. But the increase in population doesn't necessarily fix certain employment issues. You know, if you want to grow the agricultural workforce in a country, uh, in, 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 a, in a certain city, you do need um, the right workers, the inner city workers who just work from, you know, their new beautiful study in their, in their house and then every now and then go, go to the city. They don't fix your workforce problems. You know, they they throw money into the economy. Uh, that's that's all good. Do, but do, so, do, do they add more workforce problems? Um, in in a sense, because they drive up house prices, they make uh, it harder for but, but the people also, to get local low income earners into the town. Absolutely. I'm, I'm also thinking though as well. Let's say, for instance, you are one of one of Matt's friends and family who have been living in a in a small studio in the city they might have two or three pot plants in on on the shelf and then all of a sudden they're moving to you know a five acre block and and now they've got to manage that thing and they've never never managed to make a plant survive more than six months which is my wife <laughs> uh, so is there going to be more demand for for argument sake handyman services like we, we if you look at dalesford you can make yeah. a lot of money being a handyman in dalesford and of course, and that's that's what that's what happens when you have a certain new cohort moving into a town that creates a shift in services and products that are demanded, and it makes perfect sense. If I, it's it's simple maths uh, really that you can can you know look at here. Of course, I can teach myself how to manage five acres. If but then do I actually want to live on an acreage? You know, that, that's the first question. Well, maybe I do. Um, do I pay somebody to mow the lawn or do I do it myself? And I will do it myself if it's cheaper. I will not mow it myself if I can make more money working at my laptop in my study and pay somebody to mow the lawn. Then it's a better deal unless I really love mowing the lawn um, if, I, if I pay somebody. So then you have a demand for local you know, small type service uh, jobs, of course. And if I am a local who is maybe struggling financially and I see changes, I'd always want to scan uh, for opportunities. I'd always talk to newcomers. You know, as a mayor, I would talk to the newcomers an awful lot and try to understand how they fill their, fill their days and what their intentions are here. You know, not from a suspicious perspective, but really just to understand what opportunities might uh, be hidden in my, in my little town. So we touched on it, Simon, that obviously you're Melbourne-based and have been for many, many years now. I presume you came to Melbourne originally 13 years back and Melbourne all the way through. 
Um, has this, has this uh, with, with your knowledge of data and trends, has this COVID uh, episode shaken your resolve to stay in Melbourne? Are you considering a move to the country or, uh, or you know, looking and seeing f- fondly at what's happening back in Bavaria and thinking maybe you can encourage the wife back there? Or? Yeah, so it, it's, it's quite interesting because, the, you know, as a, as a migrant, I'm a nice example of, you know, I left someplace and went to another place because that place seemed attractive. So then you throw a big event like COVID in the mix. You want to ask what has changed? Certain things have not changed about Australia. You know, my job uh, in terms of an analyzing data can be done really well here. You know, I'd, in a sense, I'd have to relearn my job if I went to Germany and did the same thing. So that speaks against uh, resettling. Well, I could easily do my job from uh, regional Australia, but because if there isn't a pandemic, I travel an awful lot. I speak at, uh, you, know, you know, 60, 70, 80 conferences per year. Uh, that means I always need to be within, let's call it 40 minute drive of an airport. So that limits my uh, location within Australia. So the most rural uh, spot that I could live in would be somewhere in Tasmania near the airport. Um, you know, you go into rural plots, but you have the airport. So Tasmania... Uh, in this scenario, once borders are open, could be a big winner, particularly the greater Hobart area. We uh, um, we looked we looked at actually when we were looking with wife back uh, ten years ago or more than ten years now. So we we were from the southeastern side of Melbourne, and Tasmania was one of the options we looked at at the time. But you know, ended up choosing regional just because all the, a lot of the family at that time were, were still in Melbourne. So we thought, yeah. well. Rather than having the uh, straight to cross all the time just to get, catch up for a, a birthday or a wedding or whatever, it's easy to drive an hour or two back to. But you know, ah. since then, like I said, few of those family have now come to us. Um, you know, so but yeah, Tasmania I think has seen a huge growth already in property prices. But you you suggesting that they could have more to go yet? Uh, Tasmania absolutely. Uh, they're nowhere finished uh, in in terms of growth. Another city, and this is the biggest confusion to me in, in data is why Adelaide is bigger and more successful. I'm, I'm utterly puzzled. I understand Adelaide intuitively uh, in, its, in its size and in its function because I grew up in a city that is exactly the size of Adelaide, Munich. And so that, that works well. So I have a soft spot for Adelaide and I don't understand why it's growing at such a slow rate. So that's another city where I see massive upside potential. And overall, if we look at Australia um, in an international context, there is no country on earth where we have our population uh, concentrated in just the five cities. We have two thirds of all the population in our top five cities. We had before the pandemic over 80% of population growth occur in just the five cities. So we have been intensifying the concentration of population. It has long been a goal within uh, urban planning or uh, population planning in Australia to decentralize a bit because the, the rate to which we are centralized is crazy. And that has actually to do with us being a really big country. It just makes sense to put all the population in one state of one state into one little corner and then connect those uh, states with airports uh, to, to, to each other. That works well. It'd be incredibly more uh, expensive to have the population more evenly spread and then connect them. How do you connect uh, people this way? You'd have much more infrastructure spending. You'd have much more gigantic airports that you'd need to manage. If we double the population of Ballarat, 
of Bendigo, these towns would need to be serious airport towns. And that mm. throws everything into, into array. And then network planning becomes uh, more complicated. Australia is incredibly easy to manage from a um, business perspective because the only, you know, if you are a big international or national retailer who wants to enter the market, like Aldi did a couple of years back, uh, you just need to get five cities right, essentially. Or mm, probably even only two, really. Yeah, yeah, you can so you can get, really start with you, two you cities well that you have half the population. Yeah. City Melbourne, and you should be all right. Yeah. Mm. So you heard it here first, folks. Um, Simon says buy in Tasmania or Adelaide are the, the hotspots to. Uh, to I, actually, I actually do like Adelaide, and uh, but I do think if it got big, it would lose a lot of its character. So it would have to manage that well. But it's but it, like I, I look occasionally at realestate.com. I think Adelaide is quite cheap, you know, for for CBD property. Or a capital city, um, how the, the way it's connected with an excellent airport, uh, wonderful business facilities. It is just pretty. Um, so all of this. Good wine, speaks, good seafood. Yeah. Well, uh, Handorf, German Handorf yeah. is in, in driving distance. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what more do you want? But so it's, it's really the idea is that there are plenty of excellent towns there. And then you see a town like you mentioned Delsford uh, beforehand that grew like crazy is super expensive by now um and that's just because it's a pretty corner and if you are in a position um and usually retirees are in this position but now more, more workers are in this position where you're not linked uh, or tied to a certain office or job location you can then just go to pretty cities because you don't need to have a job that is located there you know they're, they're plenty of beautiful uh, cities that everybody might want to live in their Margaret River or God knows where, um, but there are no jobs. So what the hell would you do there? Do um, you go into a, a nice town with Germanic origins like a Handorf uh, near Adelaide and then you could at least find somewhere, Simon, to have a vice first on a Sunday morning for breakfast and that's the main reason. the beer garden. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but I guess... I guess one of the things is it's like it's all very well, but it's still to move to a regional area, but it still requires the one thing that's enabled home working and home learning is internet access. Mm. Which, yes. Which will be like I know like I'm lucky here I have fiber. And but I do know that if I if I do a speed test, you know, during the lockdowns a couple of weeks ago, it yeah. went from say a thousand megabits per second to a hundred, which is still more than enough to to use uh, but there are limits of capacity oh. and, and i i don't like matt sometimes we have issues with you because i'm on satellite nbn but the rollout of this um the last the starlink <clears throat> uh you know the, the starlink one is um is one that uh, people are saying is going to make a massive difference to to speeds in regional and rural communities um once that's up and running and it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. very important, not just for the idea, can we get office workers from the CBT tower into a regional town? It, this has to do, well, ACTEC is, is, is impacted. You have the idea of telehealth that is being impacted. Telehealth, if done right, um, will actually really help local rural communities to stay, you know, to, to have their populations stay there, remain there for a bit longer, the aging population. Um, that, of course, requires a complete rethinking of how GPs uh, manage uh, their telehealth. I today heard that only 7% of all the telehealth that was conducted 
during COVID was done via video and the rest was all just telephone, which is crazy to me because you do see that there is so much more um, opportunities to really innovate in this field in, in to, to change our service delivery in these sectors. So again, for people who are out there scanning the country for opportunities, digital services in regional rural Victoria or Australia are massively in demand over the next, uh, you know, decades, really. Yeah, now that's... Um... So, yeah, Simon, we don't want to take you too much of your time uh, because we know that, you know, you've got to go out and get your, was it 45 minutes of exercise or, <laughs> or, or whatever you're allowed to do at the moment in Melbourne? Yes. But I just wanted to finish off by sort of summarising some of the things that you've said. Invest in Tasmania. <laughs> Uh, if not set up a handyman service in regional areas, so cleaning gutters and whatnot, all, all the jobs that people don't like doing, and get the internet sorted. That's it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. So that's, that's your homework, dear listeners. So Telstra shares, uh, gutter cleaning equipment, and and Tasmania will be sorted. <laughs> Yeah, the cleaning. It's just on that. My um, my brother-in-law at one stage, he's a he's a Melbourne-based fellow, a double-story place in Kew, and he decided one stage he was going to go up uh, and clean the gutters out with lower, but from the ladder, um, and found out very quickly about displacement and uh, and got blown off the ladder. Uh, lucky he didn't injure himself too badly, but um, it's a, a good a good one to keep to the professionals. Uh, and now he calls a guy. Go. Yeah. Well, I, 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 did, I did my gutters yesterday and I said to my wife when I went in, I said, we're going to pay somebody to do that next time. <laughs> I, after I was covered in mud and whatever else was in those gutters. So, very, very topical. But, very but, topical. I'm all, but I'm also a tight ass Scotsman. So, that's like, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, Simon, for coming along. And, like, I really appreciate your insights. And, Look, anyone who's listening, uh, you probably already, if you're on Twitter, you probably already follow Simon anyway, but Simon German 600 is the Twitter account. And uh, yep, and we'll, we'll get you on when the census results come out. When do the census results come out? Uh, it's next year, I think. Is the first bit, first bit comes out next July, I think. And then the second big uh, set of data in uh, October, October next year. Well, we'll get you on before then. We'll find something else to talk about. Uh, we'll find an excuse. <laughs> there, might be, there might be some sharing of data. We can, uh, if you, you said before, there might be a few gaps in your agricultural sets. Um, yep. we, we've got the market cornered in agricultural data sets. So yeah. we'll be able to, to let you know where you can find what you need to find. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. It was a uh, great fun. Big pleasure to, uh, to be chatting with you guys. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, Simon. And uh, listeners, we'll see you when you got nothing on, right? Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Ciao for now. Yeah, cheers.